Elkanah Walker was a missionary living among the Spokane Native Americans in what was to become Washington State. During the 1840s, he wrote a letter to a friend detailing aspects of his life with the natives, mostly unremarkable observations, with one glaring exception. The Washington Territory would have seemed a wild and distant place to his fellow whites living back east, and they would have had little trouble believing his tales about the strange superstitions that abounded in his remote dwelling place. Contained within this letter was a germ, a fragment of a story that proved to be one of the earliest traceable Western accounts of a tale that was to become one of 20th century America's greatest legends. Walker wrote of the natives, and my apologies for some of the dated language here, bear with me if I trouble you with a little of their superstitions. They believe in a race of giants which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. This mountain is covered with perpetual snow. They, the creatures, inhabit the snow peaks. They hunt and do all their work at night. They are men stealers. They come to the people's lodges at night when the people are asleep and take them and put them under their skins and to their place of abode without even waking. Their track is a foot and a half long. They steal salmon from Indian nets and eat them raw as the bears do. If the people are awake, they always know when they are coming very nearby, for their strong smell is most intolerable. It is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles, and then the stones will begin to hit their houses. Walker also used the word celatics to refer to a supposed banished cannibal tribe feared and hated by the Spokane, but he believed himself that these were in fact quite different to the giants mentioned before. Still, the use of this term was to become inextricably linked to stories of the giants in the Western imagination in years to come. Living as I do in an age where truth is becoming an increasingly malleable concept, I find myself more and more interested in finding out exactly how strange ideas get started. If Walker's account is to be trusted, we seem to have here an extremely early Western account of a North American wildman, known variously in early reports as hairy wildmen, mountain devils, Sasquatch, or Seatics. These mysterious beings would eventually all come to be folded into the mythology of an animal known around the world as Bigfoot. Now, I have long believed the debunkers take that Bigfoot as a formal legend was codified by the famous Jerry Crew and Ray Wallace footprint escapade of 1958. I took it for granted that the Bigfoot legend was solidified at this time when the famous footprints made waves around the world and that older reports, originally more varied, were afterwards cherry-picked as a new generation of monster hunters rifled through the historical records eager to confirm their belief in the great hairy beast. Uncritical Bigfoot hunting shows and bad cable documentaries always claim that Native Americans have had legends of Bigfoot for centuries. I personally had always taken these claims as being somewhat selective on sometimes deliberate misinterpretations of real myths. But Walker's diary entry gave me cause to reassess. Here we seem to have a much older report that features many of the basic components of modern Bigfoot lore. Giant man-like creatures that steal people away, live secretive lives in the remote mountains of the Pacific Northwest, 
smell intolerably and throw rocks to ward off humans. The mountain to the west mentioned by Walker is usually presumed by Bigfoot researchers to be Mount St. Helens, a peak which would later become enshrined in Bigfoot lore, as we'll see later in the show. Could it be that, real or not, the folkloric post-1958 Bigfoot has much older roots than is often claimed? You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast that tries to answer the questions Why do people believe weird things? And when does irrational belief become dangerous? From deep within the wide Atlantic bunker, located somewhere in the wilds of Essex, I'll spend this episode poring over yellowed newspapers and crumbling diaries to find out the truth about Bigfoot before 1958. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the show where we use tales of the unknown, urban legends and a little weird fiction to find out why people insist on believing weird things and whether they might actually have a point sometimes. In case of point on this occasion, being that the sluggish English summer has finally kicked into shape, uh, I've abandoned the bunker because it was getting a little bit steamy and a little bit sweaty. Uh, I've now set up in the Wide Atlantic Weird cabin for the summer. So if you hear any nice chirping or bird sounds in the background, that's the reason why. And as for tonight's drink, uh, I've gone back to an old classic. Tonight I'm enjoying a bottle of Mirror Pond Pale Ale by Deschutes Brewery from Bend in Oregon. Uh, A place where I spent a little time once upon a time, a long time ago in fact. Uh, I think it was probably the first IPA I ever had. So I still have fond memories of the place. And it's only one state over from the home of Bigfoot, which of course is Washington State itself. But let's get back to the show. 1958 was a key year for Bigfoot. It's the year when the big guy exploded into the popular consciousness. It's the year in which he made headlines all over the world for the first time. And crucially, it's the year in which he finally got his catchy name. But is it fair to claim, as I have often done before on the show, that 1958 was really the year in which Bigfoot was invented? When logger Jerry Crew and his prankster employer, Ray Wallace, first mugged for the cameras, holding enormous casts of footprints 16 inches long, claiming that an unknown monster had left tracks all over their logging camp on the remote and appropriately named Bluff Creek Road, Northern California... America was finally given its answer to the abominable snowman of Tibet. The snowman, given a boost in international notoriety itself due to the famous Shipton photograph of a Yeti print taken near the summit of Everest in 1951, had been big news. So much so that abominable snowman was a moniker commonly applied even to hairy American monsters prior to the advent of the Willow Creek prints. Cryptozoological superstar himself, Roger Patterson, even titled his book on the subject Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? Just one year before making his famous video of the big-breasted Bigfoot that has come to be known as Patty. But more on that later. 
Along with the astonishing photographs of the Bluff Creek prints came the name the workers on the site had given the folkloric beast they presumed had made it. Big Foot, two words. It fell to newspaperman Andrew Gonzoli of the Humboldt Times to make this term famous, and soon the words were joined together into a name that would become a buzzword and take the world by storm. Bigfoot. Author Joshua Blueblows reckons in his book Bigfoot, The Life and Times of a Legend that this 1950s Bigfoot should be seen as part of a lengthy tradition of loggers inventing crazy creatures to make fun of one another and to deal with their fears about living in the wilderness. He should be seen as a companion to Paul Bunyan, the Hodag, the Behinder and other folkloric beings of backwoods Americana. And by the late 50s, the public had a pretty good idea of what Bigfoot was and what it looked like too. A huge hairy creature, part ape, part man. A description Leonard Nimoy would later make famous in the 70s show In Search Of. But what if the American wild man had not always been thought of this way? See, when Ray Wallace died in 2002, his family claimed that he had faked the famous footprints using wooden feet way back in the day. So would this particular case seemingly outed as a hoax? Well, there's quite a lot riding on whether or not all subsequent Bigfoot lore descends from that historic 1958 case, or whether the pattern was already in place before. And so you see why Elkana Walker, writing from the frontier in the 1840s and telling tales of mysterious creatures from, maybe, Mount St. Helens, takes on a new significance. Skeptics often take the view that sure, Pre-1958 wildman reports exist, but they're not necessarily describing the same thing as the modern myth of Bigfoot. They note that these older reports usually describe the beings as being a secretive tribe of uncontacted Native Americans. It's certainly true that Native Americans themselves in the reports often describe the creatures this way. So, as we leave through these tales, I'll be paying particular attention to whether the beings are described as human-like, ape-like, or something in between. I can't claim that I'll be able to touch on every single step in the evolution of the idea of Bigfoot in this episode. But I'm hopeful that I can hit on a decent number of the key encounters that shaped our notions of the big guy. There are many other hairy wild man stories from different parts of Canada and the US over the next 80 years or so. Some famous, some forgotten, some recognisably in line with the standard Bigfoot identity, some not so much. In 1847, one Paul Kane reported that natives living near Mount St. Helens told him the area was frequented by beings of a species other than man, who were cannibals and who were known as the Skookum. Like Walker's Seatics, they had supernatural abilities, though it's unclear whether or not they were described as being ape-like. And in 1906, North Ontario's North Bay Nugget newspaper reported the first of several sightings of a hairy ape-like creature near the town of Cobalt. This being was nicknamed the Cambrian Shield Man, or sometimes Old Yellowtop, because his fur was black everywhere except for his extraordinary blonde head. But the next real significant step on our journey, in my eyes, takes us to the town of Kelso in Washington State in the year 1924. That summer, 
a posse consisting of policemen, newspaper reporters and curious locals all got caught up in what became known as the Great Ape Hunt. A story had gotten out that five miners had had an astonishing encounter with mysterious beings that inhabited the pine-clad slopes of what became known as Ape Canyon in the vicinity of, you guessed it, Mount St. Helens. On July 13th, 1924, the Oregonian newspaper reported, The strangest story to come from the Cascade Mountains was brought to Kelso today by Marion Smith, his son Roy Smith, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre and John Peterson, who encountered the fabled Mountain Devils, or Mountain Gorillas, of Mount St. Helens this week, shooting one of them and being attacked throughout the night by rock bombardments of the beasts. The men had been prospecting a claim on the Muddy, a branch of the Lewis River, about eight miles from Spirit Lake, 46 miles from Castle Rock. They declared that they saw four of the huge animals, which were about seven feet tall, weighed about 800 pounds, and walked erect. Smith and his companions declared that they had seen the tracks of the animals several times in the last six years, and Indians have told of the mountain devils for 60 years, but none of the animals has ever been seen before. Smith met with one of the animals and fired at it with a revolver, he said. Thursday, Fred Beckett has said, shot one, the body falling over a precipice. That night, the animals bombarded the cabin where the men were sleeping with showers of rocks, many of them larger ones, knocking chunks out of the log cabin, according to the prospectors. Many of the rocks fell through a hole in the roof, and two of the rocks struck Beck, one of them rendering him unconscious for nearly two hours. The animals were said to have the appearance of huge gorillas. They are covered with long black hair. Their ears are about four inches long and stick straight up. They have four toes, short and stubby. The tracks are 13 to 14 inches long. These tracks have been seen by forest rangers and prospectors for years. The prospectors built a new cabin this year, and it is believed to be close to a cave thought to be occupied by the animals. Mr. Smith believes he knows the location of the cave. Now, there are some astonishing details here. Note that the mountain devils appear to be already a well-recognised local phenomena, as described by the newspaper. The use of the term ape to describe the creatures fits in closely with both earlier and later reports of Bigfoot too. The main physical difference is, of course, the Spock-like pointed ears, not something that stuck around as a staple of Bigfoot lore, it must be said. The gorge the dead or wounded creature tumbled into subsequently became known as Ape Canyon. The story is, by and large, supported by a certain amount of evidence. There were plenty of newspaper reports from the time that covered both the initial event and the ape hunt frenzy that followed. In July 2013, a Washington-based paranormal team even claimed to have found the remains of the cabin itself, though they kept the details of the exact location a secret. The story of the attack apparently got out when the miners fled the cabin in the early morning after the encounter. Despite their having sworn an oath to keep the story a secret, Marion Smith promptly went to a bar, the Blue Ox in Kelso, and spilled his guts. Within a matter of days, the story became a newspaper sensation. Three days later, on July 16, 1924, the Oregonian reported something that tied in with old Elkanah Walker's tale of a mysterious giant tribe of Native Americans. Now, all mispronunciations in this bit are, of course, my own. 
the big apes reported to have bombarded a shack of prospectors at Mount St. Helens are recognized by Northwestern Indians as none other than the Siatic tribe of Indians. Siatic is a Klalam pronunciation. All other tribes of the Northwest pronounce it Siatke. Northwestern Indians have long kept the history of the Siatic tribe a secret because the tribe is the skeleton in the Northwestern Indians' closet. Another reason the Indians have never divulged the existence of this tribe is that the Northwestern Indians know the white man would not believe the stories regarding this tribe. Every Indian, especially of the Puget Sound tribes, is familiar with the history of these strange giant Indians, as they are sometimes referred to by locals. Shaker Indians of northwestern Oregon, who attended the Shakers Convention on the Skokomish Reservation on Hood Canal last year, related to the writer their experience with the Siatic Indians. Oregon and Washington Indians agree that the Siatic Indians are not less than seven feet tall, and some have been seen that were fully eight feet in height. They have hairy bodies like a bear. This is to protect them from the cold, as they live entirely in the mountains. They kill their game entirely by hypnotism. They have great supernatural powers. They also have the gift of ventriloquism, and have deceived many ordinary Indians by throwing their voices. The writer was told by Oregon Indians during his research work among them last year that the Siatic tribe can imitate any bird of the Northwest, especially the blue jay, and that they have a very keen sense of smell. Oregon Indians at times have been greatly humiliated by the Siatic's vulgar sense of humour. The Siatics play practical jokes upon them and steal their Indian women. Sometimes an Indian woman comes back. More often she does not, and it is even said by some Northwestern Indians that they have a strain of the Siatic blood in them. Oregon and Washington Indians differ in regard to the Siatic's home. The Oregon Indians assert they made their home in or near Mount Rainier, while the Puget Sound Indians say they live in the heart of the wilderness at Vancouver Island, B.C. The writer of the article is told by his Native American informers that the Siatic tribe is generally peaceful when left alone, but will retaliate if provoked, attacking humans and stealing their women. They also rub their bodies with a mysterious medicine that makes them invisible. He is told that attacks such as these have occurred most recently within a couple of generations. Interestingly, the headline for this article, Big Hairy Indians Back of Ape Tale, is credited with propagating the myth that the miners were attacked by a tribe of ordinary Native Americans. Indeed, this can only be accepted by someone who has not read the article and seen this tribe, the Siatics, described as being decidedly non-human and described as a tribe by peoples who would have had no other experience of any primates other than man. Another explanation, that a group of boys from a YMCA camp some miles away had thrown the rocks and confused the miners, appears equally unlikely once the details are examined. The times and distances involved really don't seem to add up. Note how the Native American take on this tribe is something of a supernatural one. While the Ape Canyon miners reported, at least at the time, an encounter with seemingly flesh and blood creatures that would be acceptable to today's cryptozoologists. I say at the time as Fred Beck, the miner who apparently shot the first creature and provoked the attack, much later wrote a pamphlet detailing the event, by which time he had adopted a, shall we say, more metaphysical take on the encounter. More on that to come. I'm doing my best to show what was reported at the time 
and not back-project the layers that were later added to the story. And what of the great ape hunt? Here is what writer Robert Damon Schneck has to say about it in his book Mrs. Wakeman vs. the Antichrist and Other Strange But True Tales from American History. Sportsmen, reporters and police converged on Mount St. Helens in what became known as the Great Ape Hunt of 1924. The woods were full of people armed with rifles and shotguns and pistols, shooting at anything that moved. Beck returned with two reporters and a detective to find the miners' possessions strewn about the cabin, the blasting powder missing and at least one giant footprint. It was photographed and pictures were taken of Fred and Leroy Smith reenacting the siege. Many dismissed the story as a hoax. Deputy Game Warden Justice Merck declared it was all bunk. When forest rangers J. H. Huffman and W. M. Welch found a four-toed footprint, Huffman with the knuckles and palm of his right hand duplicated the imprint perfectly with the statement, they were made that way. The legend of Ape Canyon has gone down in the area as a bit of colourful local folklore, and one that has never been forgotten. And though it made a bit of a splash in the American newspapers of the day, it didn't have serious lasting repercussions, as there wasn't a well-understood framework of belief surrounding the strange creatures that attacked the miners. Not yet. Still awaiting his defining cultural moment, Bigfoot remained an as-yet regional bit of folklore. On April 1st, 1929, the readers of Maclean's magazine were astonished to learn that British Columbia hid a mysterious race of long-haired monsters in J.W. Burns's highly influ- influential article Introducing B.C.'s Hairy Giants, a collection of strange tales about British Columbia's wild men as told by those who say they have seen them. Burns was a government-sanctioned teacher on the Chehalis Indian Reservation beside the Harrison River, about 60 miles east of Vancouver, near the town of Harrison Hot Springs, which today hosts Sasquatch conventions and festivals. It's appropriate, as it is from the writings of Burns that the word Sasquatch first enters the English language. McLean's was a national magazine, and its use of this local term, though somewhat mangled by Burns from the original, which he wrote meant hairy mountain men, certainly helped to first popularise it, giving the North American wild man his first widely recognised name. The waters have been slightly muddied over the years as a similar but rewritten article featuring Burns' stories was published again in 1940 in The Wide World, a magazine for men, but Burns' original article still exists and is well worth a read. Are the vast mountain solitudes of British Columbia of which but very few have been so far explored, populated by a hairy race of giants, men, not ape-like men. Reports from time to time, covering a period of many years, have come from the hinterlands of the province that hairy giants have been occasionally seen by Indian and white trappers in the mountain fastnesses, far from the pathway of civilization. These reports, however, were always vague and indefinite, for the reason that no person could be found, or, at least, nobody came forward with the information that they had obtained a close-up view of these strange creatures. Persistent rumours led the writer to make diligent inquiries among old Indians. The question relating to the subject was always, or nearly always, evaded with the trite excuse 
The white man don't believe he make joke of the Indian. But after three years of plotting, I have come into possession of information more definite and authentic than has come to light at any previous time. Disregarding rumour and hearsay, I have prevailed upon men who claim they had actual contact with these hairy giants to tell what they know about them. Their story is set down here in good faith. Burns tells of a Chehalis man who had an encounter with one of the creatures. One evening in the month of May twenty years ago, he said, I was walking along the foot of the mountain about a mile from the Chehalis Reserve. I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt, nearby. Looking in the direction in which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder twenty or thirty feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but as I did the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. It was a man, a giant, no less than six and one-half feet in height and covered with hair. He was in a rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground. I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. I never ran so fast before or since, through brush and undergrowth towards the Statlu or Chehalis River, where my dugout was moored. From time to time I looked back over my shoulder. The giant was fast overtaking me. A hundred feet separated us. Another look, and the distance measured less than fifty. Then the Chehalis, and in a moment the dugout shot across the stream to the opposite bank. The swift river, however, did not in the least daunt the giant, for he began to wade it immediately. I arrived home, almost worn out from running, and I felt sick. Taking an anxious look around the house, I was relieved to find the wife and children inside. I bolted the door and barricaded it with everything at hand. Then, with my rifle ready, I stood near the door and awaited his coming. Peter added that if he had not been so excited, he could easily have shot the giant when he began to wade the river. After an anxious waiting of twenty minutes, resumed the Indian, I heard a noise approaching like the trampling of a horse. I looked through a crack in the old wall. It was the giant. Darkness had not yet set in, and I had a good hard look at him. Except that he was covered with hair, and twice the bulk of the average man, there was nothing to distinguish him from the rest of us. He pushed against the wall of the old house with such force that it shook back and forth. The old cedar shook, and timbers creaked and groaned so much under the strain that I was afraid it would fall down and kill us. I whispered to the old woman to take the children under the bed. Peter pointed out what remained of the old house in which he lived at the time, explaining that the giant treated it so roughly that it had to be abandoned the following winter. After prowling and grunting like an animal around the house, continued Peter, he went away. We were glad, for the children and the wife were uncomfortable under the old bedstead. Next morning, I found his tracks in the mud around the house, the biggest of either man or beast I had ever seen. The tracks measured 22 inches in length, but narrow in proportion to their length. An interesting case of a particularly vicious and stubborn Sasquatch, similar to the vengeful creatures of Ape Canyon. Interesting too is Burns's and his witness insistence that the creature is more man-like than ape-like in this case. Burns provides several similar stories in his article, many of them having taken place 20 years ago or more. Some of his witnesses believe that the beings may still live in the remote wilderness beyond the reservation, and he later declared that he had no doubt that they still existed himself. In another story, Burns tells us of a witness named Charlie who shot what he thought was a bear in a tree. Instead, what appeared to be a white boy fell from the tree. But things were about to get even stranger. 
And once again, my apologies for the dated language here. He let out a wild yell, or rather a call, as if he were appealing for help. From across the mountain, a long way off, rolled a booming voice. Near and more near came the voice, and every now and again the boy would return and answer, as if directing the owner of the voice. Less than a half hour, out from the depth of the forest, came the strangest and wildest creature one could possibly see. I raised my rifle. The hairy creature, for that was what it was, walked towards me without the slightest fear. The wild person was a woman. Her face was almost negro black and her long straight hair fell to her waist. In height she would be about six feet, but her chest and shoulders were well above the average in breadth. Charlie remarked that he had met several wild people in his time, but had never seen anyone half so savage in appearance as this woman. The old brave confessed he really was afraid of her. She cast a hasty glance at the boy. Her face took on a demonical expression when she saw he was bleeding. She turned upon me savagely and in the Douglas tongue said, You have shot my friend. I explained in the same language, for I'm part Douglas myself, that I had mistaken the boy for a bear and that I was sorry. She did not reply, but began a sort of wild frisk or dance around the boy, chanting in a loud voice for a minute or two, and as if in answer to her, from the distant woods came the same sort of chanting troll. In her hand, she carried something like a snake about six feet in length, but thinking over the matter since, I believe it was the intestine of some animal. But whatever it was, she constantly struck the ground with it. She picked up the boy with one hairy hand, with as much ease as if he had been a wax doll. Charlie told Burns that the creature told him it had cursed him, and that he would never kill a bear again. He later blamed his paralysis on the wild woman's spell. Clearly this is a more mystical version of Sasquatch than today's cryptozoologists would recognise, but the detail of it speaking one of the native languages is reminiscent of Walker's creatures from way back in 1840, almost a century earlier. Charlie also mentioned that the boy must have been a human child stolen by the Sasquatch woman. Indians, said Charlie, have always known that wild men lived in the distant mountains, within 60 and 100 miles east of Vancouver. And of course, they may live in other places throughout the province, but I've never heard of it. It is my own opinion since I met that wild woman 15 years ago that because she spoke the Douglas tongue, these creatures must be related to the Indian. Lastly, Burns reports on a then-recent incident that happened at a gathering of hop pickers at the tiny town of Agassiz near Harrison Hot Springs in 1927, when a giant hairy man appeared from the bush. A witness wrote, He was twice as big as the average man, with hands so long that they almost touched the ground. It seemed to me that his eyes were very large, and the lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave the creature such a frightful appearance that I ran away as fast as I could. Old Indians who were present said, The wild man was no doubt a Sasquatch, a tribe of hairy people whom they claim have always lived in the mountains, in tunnels and caves. No doubt sensing that a good marketing opportunity had come their way, the town of Harrison Hot Springs was hosting a Sasquatch-themed festival by 1938 at the earliest. Burns wrote that at this historic first Sasquatch Fest, Native American leaders took umbrage at a white announcer who described the great beast as being legendary and loudly and clearly contradicted him, stating that Sasquatch was, indeed, very real. 
and in his 1940 article, Burns first introduced the story of Seraphine Long. Long was a native woman in her 70s when he spoke to her, and she claimed that her harrowing Sasquatch encounter took place many years before, when she was allegedly kidnapped by one of the creatures and brought back to its family. She described them as giants and makes them sound hairy but not particularly ape-like, rather in line with some of the previous stories that we had from Burns. The family fed her on roots, fish and meat. She learned a few words of their language, which she described as being similar to that of the Douglas people. But there was clearly something else going on in the cave too, because the story has an odd twist, in that after finally escaping and returning home, she finds herself pregnant and gives birth to a hybrid Sasquatch child. The child lives only a few hours before expiring, something for which she said she had always been thankful. That brings us to the end of part one of this roundup of reports, Bigfoot before 1958. So far, we have traced some of the earliest known accounts of the being that came to be known as Bigfoot. We have seen how the Native Americans had various beliefs regarding wild men, how some were believed to be simply an unusual tribe of humans or human-like beings, how some were reported as being flesh and blood creatures, and how others clearly had mythological or supernatural powers. Hopefully we've seen too how slippery it can be to figure out what natives may actually have believed at the time, when now we only have the words and interpretations of the white settlers to go on. I personally have a strong feeling that, in some of these early cases, it's likely that the original spiritual context for these Sasquatch-like creatures was lost, when whites retold the tale and recast the creatures as cryptozoological monsters. Still, there's a lot more to come in part two. The fascination with Sasquatch and the minting of an American icon were to pick up speed in the early 1950s before the beast finally had its big moment. Coming up is the sighting of William Rowe, a tale that some say inspired the famous Roger Patterson to fake one of the most important and most famous bits of film in the history of cinematography. I'm talking, of course, about Patty, but you'll have to wait for part two. Coming up also is the first appearance of Bigfoot at a place where his footprints became a media sensation. A place where a digger operator and his prankster boss were to bring Bigfoot to the world. A place called Bluff Creek. You've been listening to another hairy, smelly, noisy episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. If you like the show and want to keep the lights on in the cabin, give me a review and a rating wherever you listen. Any really good, funny, pleasant or just interesting reviews and I'll read them on the show. You can share episodes on social media with anyone who you think might be interested. That's always appreciated. And you can chat with me on Twitter if you've got nice things to say where I'm at Strange Ireland. And do send us on any weird personal encounters you might have had yourself. If you've seen Bigfoot, even in the most unlikely of places, we want to know about it. We're ready to believe you, and thanks for listening.